guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and you're listening to Specify, the Building Materials Innovation Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to help the entrepreneurs and the innovators who are making a positive difference in the building materials, coatings, and construction industry. Each episode, we'll tap leaders and experts from inside and outside the industry to provide the mental tools, skills, and insights to make an impact. Today's guest is Sharon Drew Morgan, author of nine books, including Dirty Little Secrets and hundreds of articles that explain different aspects of the behind the scene issues buyers must manage before they buy. Sharon Drew, thank you for coming on the show. Hi, Taz. I'm excited. Yeah. I mean, you've been involved in so many different things over the years. Tell me more about your background. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know where to start. I think the funnest place, I was a social worker and a journalist, but I was not making very much money and I decided it was time to go into business. So I put on the only good dress that I had, which I bought in Goodwill. I was I was a single parent to a, a handicapped child, so I couldn't work all the hours I needed. I was poor, but I got this one really nice dress. I thought it was nice. And I, I marched into Merrill Lynch and I said, I want to talk to the person in charge. I didn't realize I was walking into Merrill Lynch White Weld Inc. on Wall Street. That was the number one head office for the worldwide <laughs> Merrill Lynch. <laughs> And said, oh, you want to see Charlie Roth? He was the acting CEO for Don Regan, who was working with Reagan at the time, that many years ago. And so she said, there's the elevator, and there's this little, 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 little tiny elevator. Maybe it was room for three people. And I said, wow, that's a really small elevator. And I got out. It only went to one floor <laughs> at the top. <laughs> and I wasn't a business person. I was a social worker and journalist. I didn't understand what was going on. And so I walked down, there was a little alcove there, and she said, who are you here to see? And I said, Charlie Ross. And she said, okay, go back that way. And I went to this other little alcove, and there was this huge room overlooking this Statue of Liberty and Staten Island and the ferry and the water. And in the middle was this little man, bald head, and the secretary stands in front and looks at me and says, can I help you? And I sort of peered into his office and caught his eye and he waved his hand and I waved my hand and she looked down at his calendar and shrugged and went and just walked me in. So he sat me down. He went, hi, I'm Charlie Ross. How can I help you? We sat in two little chairs on the side. I said, hi, you can hire me. And he said, okay, what can I hire you as? (laughs) And I said, well, I thought I'd be a trainer. And I, I thought I was talking to like one of the managers, you know, mm. and and he said, if you could do what you just did, you know, he said, how about if we make you a stockbroker? And I said, no, 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 I don't know a thing about stocks or bonds. And he said, if you could do what you just did, I'll teach you the rest. <laughs> so that's how, that's how I began my career in sales, walking into the CEO of Merrill Lynch's office unannounced. Wow. So I did it because I didn't know any better because I was too stupid to do it the right way, which is sort of the story of my life. So I became, I became the, the top producer, the rookie of the year that year at Merrill, because I was calling people, it was a bad market. That was when the market was 777, if you can imagine that. 
and a big day with 60 million shares. And I would call people and say, hi, you don't know me, but I'm a stockbroker and I'm sure I'll probably lose you money. And they go, wait, what? <laughs> you're honest? You're, you're being honest with me? And so I was, I opened more accounts than anybody else. But I kept thinking there was something really crazy about the sales model. I couldn't understand why I was pushing all this information on people who might not want to hear it, might already have it, might not want me, might be using something else, might have other issues involved. Just made no sense to me. And then I talked to some people a few years in and got them excited by an idea I, I had about creating this a tech startup. I didn't realize it was a tech startup at the time, but that's apparently what it turned into in 1983. And so I got investor money to, to do a startup in London. And I had no idea what technology was. I had no, because it was just new. And I had no idea how to run a business. I'd never done that before. And I got these people excited by my idea of serving the users who were using this new technology. My husband was a, was a newfangled tech guy. And he was trying to explain things to me, which I caught a bit of and sort of had sort of this idea. And we ended up in England and he got a six month contract with a client. And I was left to start up this company at this little tiny office. You couldn't open the door until you moved the chair because it was an old closet. And I didn't even know how to dial out because it was a shared office. 1983. So I, uh, I figured out to call American Express and I said to the receptionist, listen, I'm, I'm selling services for this fourth generation language. My husband told me to say that. I didn't even know what that meant. And I said, and I don't know if there's anyone using it there. Can you, do you know anyone that's using the fourth generation language? So she said, you know, I've heard something about that. Let me give you a few names. Try these departments. And she gave me like 10 department heads. (laughs) And I got this first guy on the phone. His name was Jim. And I said, hi, you don't know me. My name is Sharon Drew Morgan. And I'm starting up a company that supports users using this. It's called Focus. It's fourth generation language. And wondering what you're doing around getting the help you need for that. And he said, that's what my husband told me. I said, hey. So I didn't know what that meant. And he said, wow. He said, what? That's really great. He said, I bet you we could use some help. Why don't you tell me what you're doing? (laughs) I don't know how to say anything. I didn't know what I was doing. So I said, you know, why don't you tell me what's stopping you from having the kind of results you want to have? So we talked for about 10 minutes because I didn't want to pitch because I didn't know what I was, I didn't know what I was selling. <laughs> so I, I wanted him to keep figuring out ways to solve the problem himself. So I didn't have to pitch. And I, and I kept saying, but you've got a good company there. What's stopping you from finding people within your company that can help you with that? So at the end of the call, he said, you know, you just helped me solve my own problem. <laughs> he said, can I, can I give you some more names and numbers? He said, that questioning process you put me through was really terrific. Maybe you can help a bunch of other people. 
So he gave me bunches of names. So by the end of the first day, I had about 30 names and numbers, 10, 15, 20 of which were given to me by Jim. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, that sort of worked. So I began using the same process. And about five or six weeks later, Jim called me back and said, you know, I tried to get help here and nobody could do it. Can you help me? So he was my first client. Mm. And what I began realizing now that I was on the buyer's side also, because I was running a company and I had things I had to buy and things I needed, was that there was a difference between selling and buying. And that selling actually does not cause buying. Mm. That selling is about the product, the solution, the details of what you've got to offer. And the buying process was wholly different. And the sales model only came in at the end of the buying decision process, the buying patterns, the buy cycle. So what I did for the next years was I developed my model called buying facilitation. And I coded the 13 steps that buyers actually all go through en route to making a decision. And what I realized that the first nine steps were systemic, were about change. You, you can't, I'll, I'll talk in terms of your client base here, your listeners. Sure. As a person, let's say I want to do a landscape. I'm not going to just start hiring a landscape architect until I've discussed it with my spouse, until I've gone to the bank and see what my money situation is, until I've figured out what any restrictions I'm going to have on the land by the county, until I talk to my neighbors, until I start looking at design to do a little bit of research on my own. I have a bunch of work to do before I'm at the point where I'm ready to actually choose a landscape architect. It's the same with a building. You don't start off with a contractor. That's the last thing or one of the last things that occurs. There's a billion other things you have to do before you get there. So like I say to people, I can have the greatest house in the world for you, but if you and your wife haven't figured out that you want to move, that it's school for the kids, that you want to do a climate thing, you want to do near your, your in-laws, you want to be near a hospital, you want to go within this price range, you can sell your house, you've got, until you do that work, it's got nothing to do with this fabulous house I have to sell you. So the problem that I discovered and that I fixed was the differential between the selling portion and the buying portion. And I teach sellers how to help buyers get through the buying portion so they can then sell. I'm not taking away the sales effort. I'm just adding a front end to it because I believe that the sales model is a second stage model and that we're totally overlooking the first stage. Mm, okay. So uh, assuming they, they sort of figure this out and kind of go towards your, your methodology that you're talking about, what does that look like in practice? I mean, is it that question asking process that you're talking to or or what, what sort of practical steps can they take to move in that direction? So here's one of the problems. 
when we start off with the focus of selling something, mm-hmm. then we're going to listen to people to hear what they're saying that we can pitch into. Mm-hmm. So number one, we have to listen differently. There's two different stages of the listening process as well. We have to begin by setting a focus of facilitating or managing change. Okay. So let's say I'm on a sales call and I did this for a while and for months and I, I used the same question to, and to listen to the difference between these responses. I said to each one, how are you adding new sales tools to what you're currently teaching your sales folks if you're wanting to increase your, your results? And one man said to me, every year I read six sales books. And the one that I think is the most effective, I, I buy 1,500 of those. I get them to all the salespeople. And then I tell the managers to meet with everybody once a month to discuss the chapters of the book. The next person said, gosh, I've been trying so many things to enhance our bottom line. <laughs> I've, been trying, I've been doing training. I've been doing coaching and nothing seems to work. I sure wish I could figure it out. Now, which one of those do you think is the buyer? <laughs> it's, it's obvious, is it not? Yes. Okay. They both probably have the exact same needs. But what one of them is doing, even though I found it horrifically ineffective, he was happy with it. He was clear. It was a pattern. He was doing it. And that's the way he did it. But the other one was looking to change, Mm -hmm. was looking to add something new. So the first thing you have to do is start with a focus on facilitating change. I don't know how many people read the article I wrote about not needing proposals, mm. but the man that I used to live with was a very famous landscape architect. Many books have been written about his stuff. I mean, he even would do things like excavate into the road for a whole story down and have the kitchen area, whatever, be down, down, down in the ground. And then he would create these mountains with waterfalls. Mm-hmm. So that anyone, and one day you looked out, there were you were in the middle of a mountain with waterfall. So he would he was famous, and his stuff was gorgeous, and it cost millions of dollars. And and he'd come home miserable every single day. Well, wrong. The clients are happy. They've been feeling it. Made it from suing me. So one day I decided I was just going to go around with him to two new clients, and then to another day to to two regular clients. And I saw what the problem was. He was selling his solution. He was selling his designs. And at no point did he say anything like, there's going to be major disruption to your home, to your life, to your furniture, to your rug, to your walls. It's going to be a horrible mess. What do you need to see from me up front to make sure that going forward, we're on the same page when all this disruption occurs? So he was helping them manage the change that was going to happen. All right. And the grumbling stopped. The grumbling was never about his solution. It was about the effects of it. He really could not control, Mm -hmm. but he could control how he was working with them around managing the, the disruption. 
So we, I always start off with the people piece, yes. and I listen for how they're currently addressing their status quo and how their plan is to get from where they are to where they want to be and what would be involved and what would be the downsides and so forth. When I worked with KPMG, they would actually pay me to write up a bunch of questions to ask their clients or use instead of proposals because too often people are focusing on the end results, especially in the building and contracting industry. You're focusing on the end results and you forget what the what the person who's paying is having to go through to get there. And that's where there's resistance. That's where there's sabotage. That's where there's fallout. Not from the project itself, except if you're not, if you haven't helped them bring together the entire list of stakeholders. And I mean the kids. Mm -hmm. I mean everybody involved. Because otherwise, you're going to create something for someone that's not what they want, hmm. and then all hell is going to break loose. <laughs> because the adults think that that's what the kid needs, or whatever. Okay? So, one of the things we have to do is not only help them figure out what the change is going to look like, how willing they are to go through some sort of disruption, their level of willingness, and what's going to happen and how to deal with that before you begin anything, but to make sure that every single solitary stakeholder is involved, every single solitary stakeholder, because if all the stakeholders are not involved, whoever's left out is going to be the problem later on. Mm. Not to mention, there's no way to get the full set of needs on paper if not everybody is represented, mm. it's not even possible. Mm. I talked about when you write a proposal, they only ask you for the final product and almost no one that creates an RFP or is talking to the builder or the contractor, almost no one understands the full set of people issues. Mm -hmm. Okay. I don't understand why that is. I don't understand it because when people look at a bid, the only ones that must take the lowest price are government people. They have to take one of their last three bids, uh, price, the lowest price points. Yeah. But no one else goes with price. It's not a money issue. And the people, if people know exactly that everyone has had their voice, they know exactly the fallout to the disruption, and the vendor's going to help them work through that, manage that. So one of the things that Martin, my partner, the landscape architect, did was he gave them a list of everything that was going to be a potential problem the approximate dates that was going to occur on. And so he would do things like have them move out for that one week, for example, because they wouldn't be able to get into the driveway. Something he wouldn't have told them beforehand, except the day before he would say, oh, by the way, you're not going to have a driveway for the next four days. You can't do that the day before. Yeah. 
So they always knew what was going on in advance. They knew what the problem areas were going to be in advance. They all had something to say. And where there was something that was problematic, like one woman had white carpet, and they had to reorganize the way they were going to do it so that people wouldn't walk through the house, even though that was much quicker. Okay? So one of the things that contractors forget is that there's a whole list of people issues that are not included when you're asked for a proposal. Hmm. And anyone that speaks to the customer first makes sure all the stakeholders are included. Everyone knows the range of possibilities of upside and downside. Everyone has a voice. Everyone is in agreement how to move forward until that's left out. And if a buyer has all that knowledge up front, she may not even need a proposal. Yeah. Right? They don't they can't tell from a proposal who's gonna be best because all they're doing is saying, Can you build me this house? Can you give me this extension? They're looking at numbers. Why are the people left out? And mm. then that's where there's fallout at the end. Yeah. Right? Does that help? Absolutely. And so a big piece of this, right? Trying to figure out the stakeholders and, and what people are looking for or they need is listening. And I, I think you wrote a book about listening. Oh, I did. Hold that thought because you said something that I want to correct, but everyone makes the same mistake. It's not the builder himself or the contractor herself or the person writing up the RFP that has to understand who the stakeholders are. The client has to understand mm. the set of givens. All right, the, the client has to understand because very often the client might say, you know, my son is 10. He doesn't have a, yeah, you wait until you give a 10-year-old a room. He doesn't want to hear what he's got to say. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay? So you put a bathroom that doesn't have X in it, whatever that is. So you have to help the client understand all these issues because we're outsiders. We don't really, really know what's going on anywhere. We barely know what's going on in our own families, let alone anybody else's families. Right? Yes. So we have to take away the under. We will need to understand whether they want drywall or pine or whatever. We will need to understand that. But in terms of the dynamics of what they're going to go through en route to getting that room, only they can know that. All right, so listening. Yes. Here's the problem with listening. Listening is really diabolical. When sound comes into our ears, it enters our ears through chemical and electrical signals. There's no words or meaning involved at all. It's just chemical and electrical. It comes into our brain, into our ears. It goes into our brain. And the first thing that our brain does is it tries to match it up with a similar electrical chemical signal, a neural pathway that takes it to a synapse 
that has a meaning that's the same as these electrical chemical signals. Whatever doesn't match in terms of meaning, our brain throws away. Hmm. So if I say ABC, your brain might go to a synapse that gets the AB right, but it'll be similar to L. So you hear ABL. And I say, well, no, 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 I didn't, I didn't say ABL. I actually said ABC. Mm-hmm. And you will say, rightly so, you will say, no, 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 I heard you say ABL. And that's true. You did hear me say ABL. But that's not what I said. So it's not our fault. One of the problems between contractors and builders and owners and householders is they don't hear each other. They're listening in different languages. They're listening with different signals, right? So they're misunderstanding, not on purpose, not because they don't want to, but how many times do you hear one of your clients say, she didn't hear me. She didn't listen to anything I said, Mm. right? It's not that they're not listening. They're in a different world. They have different electrical synapses. Their brain's interpreting it differently. So one of the things that I suggest to everyone Mm -hmm. is let me see if I understood this properly. I'm going to repeat what I think you want, what I think you said, what I think you meant. Please tell me where it's right or wrong so I can make sure I have it right. Mm. Okay. I wrote a whole book on this called What Did You Really Say What I Think I Heard? And it's all original thinking. I when I got my contract for it, I didn't have to write a proposal because I'm I'm an established author and so forth and they knew they could sell the book and so when they got it, there was no research there was no research on it when I sat down to write it. There was no research on it. <laughs> I had to read fifty two books over the course of a year. I started with a book on translations for translators at the UN so that I could figure out how people were listening that had to translate it to another language, which is really what we're doing. Every time we're listening to somebody else, we're translating a different language because they're speaking in a different language. So by the time I handed the book in, the publisher said, what is this? This is crazy. I thought you were going to talk about active listening. And I went, no, active listening is just the word. I actually got into how our brains make assumptions, how our brains hear differently or trigger to different thoughts. And then I teach how to fix it in the book. So it's a pretty cool book for those that want to try to learn to listen a bit differently. Very cool. Seems like a very helpful book. Now, you've written many books and you've done many things for many big established companies. At what point did sort of your turning point come when it started to really click? Oh, I'm not sure that it has. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that it has. I'm writing an article coming out Monday called about buying patterns because I heard someone online talking about buying patterns, assuming it was a uh, People were choosing on price and web presence and so forth, which are the final stages of the full set of buying patterns that I coined in the 70s. Yeah. So I've been trying for 40 years to help sales add the piece of facilitating the buying decision process to add to sales. Here's the problem. 
the sales model focuses on placing a solution. Yep. And you can't buy, I'll give you a a little, little, little analogy. Let's say, Ted, you wake up one day and you decide that it's time. Where do you live now? Vancouver, BC. BC, okay. Let's say you want to move to one of the islands near you. Isn't there like a Bacheron Island or something? Vancouver Island? Yeah. So that's not where you live, but it's close, but it's It's not where you live, right? Absolutely. Okay. So let's say you decide you want to move to Vancouver Island and you have a wife with a job in Vancouver. You've got a daughter who's 15, who's a cheerleader, and you have a son who's just starting off as starting quarterback in his senior year of high school. Mm-hmm. So you decide you want to move to Vancouver Island. What is the very first thing that you do? Mm. I've heard a lot of salespeople tell me they go online to look for houses in Vancouver <laughs> Island. <laughs> you you got to check with everyone so they're not mad at That's you. right. You have to <laughs> check with everyone. So now your wife says, gosh, honey, I don't know if I can work off site. Maybe I could do that. And I just go into the office a few days every few weeks. Now, I don't know. Let me check. And your daughter says, Dad, I'm a cheerleader. I'm not going to go to school over there. I'll stay here with your sister. And now your son says, Dad, I'm a starting quarterback now and I'm graduating. I'm not going to leave until June. I'm going to go move in with my girlfriend and her parents. Mm -hmm. So now you have eight people involved (laughs) on the stakeholder team. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to make a bet that's going to change the criteria you're going to have for some some place to live in Vancouver Island. Maybe you'll end up getting an Airstream and going by yourself and going every other weekend by yourself. Yeah. Maybe just you and your wife will go just and spend a week a month. It depends on the entire stakeholder team and the voices. Because until you know that, until they know that, you've got nothing to sell as a a real estate agent. Yeah. Because the needs that you think you have when you start off on your own are going to be different than when everybody's involved. Yeah. So the problem with sales is it's a, it's a, what is it? A one something pony? A one, what is that? One trick pony? Yeah, one trick pony. <laughs> what it's doing is it has all the content and the pitch and the, all the pretty stuff to sell, which means you're a solution looking for a problem. Mm. And all you can do is sell to those people who have already made all the decisions that have already gone through the whole family thing that have already done only when all that other stuff has been addressed, are they ready to buy? It's the low hanging fruit. Yeah. So the sales model runs around trying to pick off those few people who have deemed themselves buyers. Yeah. And even if you really are going to move somewhere at some point, but haven't figured out with everybody what the deal is yet, you're still a buyer. And if somebody could help you through all of the process mm-hmm. of getting there, then they're going to choose you. Yes. And the sales model continues to look for the low-hanging fruit. The problem is that the buyer has to do this anyway. 
And that's why we're sitting and waiting. Salespeople sit and wait for them. (laughs) Then we say that the buyers are in pain, which is a stupid buyer, because they're not doing what we think they should do. In the meantime, they're having a fight with their boss because there's going to be a merger, and they want to have your training now instead of a year from now after the merger. And they're actually trying to get you on board, but they're fighting with everybody. They can't call you back because they got nothing to tell you. <laughs> so yeah. we're so involved with placing our product. The only people we'll be able to sell to ever are those people who have already determined that they're ready, willing, and able to buy. Mm. And all those people en route, we're, not, we're, we're overlooking them. We're totally overlooking them. Our entire marketing model, our entire sales model, overlook those people en route to becoming buyers. Yeah. Because until they figure all this stuff out, until everyone's on board, and you know something else, the price of the solution has to be lower than the price of the disruption Mm. of the status quo. Mm Mm-hmm. Because if the price of disruption of bringing in a new solution is higher than the cost of the problem in the status quo, they will buy nothing. Mm -hmm. They have to determine the cost of disruption. Because whether you're building a house or putting in new software, there's a price of disruption. And people want that price of disruption managed. When you don't, when you don't talk about it, the buyer is left to try to figure it out. But if you're the one person that brings that in to your selling process, you have a leg up on the competition. So net net, I have been trying and failing and failing for 40 years to add the front end decision process to the entire buyer's journey. I I shouldn't say I'm totally failing. I mean, I've sold a lot of books and I've trained over 100,000 salespeople in a lot of major corporations, but the entire industry is still lagging and Mm. still trying to push product. You make a lot of sense. (laughs) Now people just have to do it, right? Absolutely. And I'm I'm happy to talk people through it. I'm happy to coach people or if there's groups that want to be trained in how to do it, I can do that. I can help some of your folks create questions instead of an uh, a proposal or with a proposal. I can help. It's Unfortunately, it's not natural yet. And since I'm the age I am, I sure wish it would hurry up and get natural. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. I mean, I, your, your, your wealth of, of knowledge on the subject, and certainly I think you're saying things that not many people are saying. So definitely we'll, we'll pass on the message. I'm certainly a fan of what you talk about here. Now, is there anything I should have asked you, but didn't? That's a nice question, Taps. <laughs> I can't stress firmly enough that although the sales model, although the proposal model is all based on you asking questions about the solution, about you understanding about the solution, about the need, of your assuming that if they have a need, they're going to be able to buy. I can't stress enough that there's a front part that we can never, ever, ever, ever know about. Mm-hmm. Do I have time to tell one more little story? Sure. Go ahead. Okay. And this is just a little baby story, but I think it says everything. I had a neighbor 
I lived I lived in Austin and I had a little ranch not far away for the weekends. And there were six one acre lots with old homes in there and I bought the sixth lot an old farmhouse and the other five acres were owned by Maria and Joe that lived across the street and their four kids. So there were the five of that family and then me. So I was sort of like melded into the family. <laughs> and Joe, uh, Maria came over one day crying. Apparently she was pre-diabetic and her daughter, her, her doctor gave her a new menu, a new what she could eat while she restricted. So I took her to Whole Foods, got her healthy stuff instead of, you know, just substitute. So belt Cheerios as opposed to wheat Cheerios and stuff like that. And I did the old-fashioned go into the do-it mode. And of all people, I should have known better. But I said, I know I'm going to just help. I'm going to. So I went into the doing, the information, the, the result. Wrong. It was wrong. And I came back. I went away for a month. And I came back. And Maria came over the house hysterical. She had gained four pounds. What happened? She said, but I can't eat this way. I can't eat this way. And then I said to myself, yo, stupid Sharon Drew, you invented this stuff. Why don't you help her decide how to change? So I said to her, Maria, what would you need to know or believe differently to be ready and willing to change your food habits to make sure you remain healthy for your lifetime? There was one of my facilitative questions. I mm -hmm. invented this new form of question to teach people how to make their own decisions. And that's what I use with KPMG. And that's what I use with clients. I give them. So I, I have invented this new form of question that teaches people, leads them through their own decision-making process without the bias of the questioner. So I posed this question to her. And she said, I would need to know my family loved me. I was not expecting that. Mm. And that had nothing to do with her food choices. I didn't think. I mean, I don't know. And I said, what, what do your food choices have to do with your family loving you? And she said, every morning I make 150 tortillas. And as everyone's leaving for school and work, I stand outside handing out bags to everybody with your tortillas for lunch and breakfast. Mm -hmm. Now, tortillas are not healthy if you're on a heart-healthy diet. Mm -hmm. They are not healthy. She said, and then Joe and I sit down and we eat them too. And I said, and if you stop making tortillas, then your family won't love you anymore. Mm. She said, right. So what we did was we came up with a plan she invited the family over for dinner. It was a big family, I have to tell you. And she had her tortilla pan. She put a big red taffeta bow on it and handed it. She said to her family, I have health issues. I can't eat or make tortillas anymore. So I'm handing it over to Susanna. She's going to be tortilla tia. <laughs> okay. And I'll make you empanadas, but not in the morning. Just whenever you call me and want them, I'll make them for you. Mm -hmm. But Susanna's going to make them. Tortilla T is going to make them every day just the way I did. So 
she was able to resolve the problem herself. Me understanding her food habits wouldn't help her figure out how to translate the love piece. So the thing that people need to understand is they'll never understand anybody else, really. Mm-hmm. So trying to gather information about anything other than the direct piece that you're going to be responsible for is specious. Instead of trying to understand that piece, help them understand how that's going to affect the result. Help them understand how to bring in all the right stakeholders. Have them understand what the disruption will cost each of them. And start your process by helping people figure out how they want to get from here to there how they're going to make sure that any disruption is managed. Once you do that, you can always sell. You lose deals not because your product is bad. You lose deals because either they don't know how to decide or because you have no idea what's really going on and you're addressing the wrong problem that they didn't know how to state in their RFP. Yeah. So I wish that people... Contractors, builders, salespeople, coaches, doctors would stop trying to focus first on the solution, on the end result, and start by helping people go through their process. In my book, Dirty Little Secrets Where Buyers Can't Buy and Sellers Can't Sell, that book is really just about the 13 stages of decision making that everybody has to go through before they reach step 10 and they say, okay, I need to bring in somebody from outside. Because these people don't want to buy anything. Mm-hmm. They just want to resolve a problem. And they first try to resolve it themselves because otherwise there's disruption. It's not until they figure out they can't resolve it themselves and they figure out the cost, the price, the weight, of bringing something new in. They will never do anything different. They will never buy. So Dirty Little Secrets, it's dirtylittlesecretsbook.com. There's two free samples. Perfect. But I just pray that people will first (laughs) add the people piece. (laughs) No, Sharon Drew. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. I'm sure people will take that in and, and think about it, how it applies to their situation. Well, and thanks for interviewing me. I would love to, if anybody wants to contact me, it's Sharon Drew at SharonDrewMorgan.com. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone, anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.